0: Yes, I appreciate it. Any help is good at my age. <laughs> As we go to our prayer time today, I would like for you to take a minute to browse over the needs and concerns of our congregation. I have some others to add to the list. Um, So Jerry and and, uh, Nancy, uh, just want to make a thank you and appreciation for Connie and Roger, Wayne and Kathy, and Don Vickroy for all of the help. Help with what? Just help in general? Oh, very good. Oh, this is from you. I thought this was from Jerry and Nancy because you handed it to me. Sorry about that, Vicki. Yeah, so thank you all for helping Vicki yesterday. Now I'm on the right page. Thank you. Cheryl Gibson's asked would be in prayer for Selena Wellington, a co-worker and friend with kidneys failing and problems with other organs as well. I'm learning having a nurse in that area, we call it comorbidity, right? Yes, so I'm learning, I'm learning. Uh, but be in prayer for her if you would. Uh, Joanne Wickland's asked we'd continue to be in prayer for, for Louie. Um, comment is his head is still down and we know what that means, it's been quite a while, um, but we pray for his eyes to heal. And she says, thank you for praying for both of them. Samantha's asked we'll be in prayer for them. There's some issues that need to go on with the house to get fixed before the cell can go through. And time is of the essence there. Uh, she also asked we'll be in prayer for Pat. He's still having some blood pressure problems and some heart rate problems. And um, we want to lift him up as well. Also, she asked that we'd be in prayer for Scott Rogers, her brother-in-law, who's having back surgery on Friday the 11th, so we want to be mindful of all of those. Also, as you can tell, most of the teenagers were gone. They were, had their prom last night, so they're all probably home recovering, um, but thank you for praying for them, that they would all be safe and sound, and um, we also want to continue to be in prayer for the mission trip coming up in July, uh, lots of... Uh, A lot of concerns that we need to get put into place so that that will be a blessed trip. And um, are there others that perhaps you missed out that you would like to lift up and you didn't get a chance? Anybody else? Oh, Jim, absolutely. Jim Fiddler. so be in prayer for him. And um, others? Very good. Well, let's go to Lord in prayer if we could, all right? Gracious Father, it is always a, a, a humbling day to come into your presence and to just acknowledge you and to thank you for all that you do in us, for us, and through us. We pray that that will never cease. I pray that we will never be a people who become oblivious to your handiwork in our day-to-day living. I pray that we will always have our eyes open so that we can see evidence of you not just working in our lives but the lives of those we care about, those around us. We pray for your healing touch upon these who are, are suffering, who are are struggling to get back into a healthy uh, rhythm. We pray for the young families, Lord, that are trying to figure out how to make ends meet. We pray for uh, the older couples, Lord, who are just struggling with health concerns. And we, we pray that you will just be mindful of all of our needs, all of our concerns, areas of weak faith as well. But Lord, may you continue to be mindful of our concerns and continue to help us to be prayerful in every situation. For you are the source of our strength. You are the source of our joy, even in the midst of suffering. And you are the source of our healing in every walks of life. You are the one who initiates the healing. And we pray for this church, Lord, that you'll continue to be the center focus of all that we do and say. We want to give you glory because you deserve it. And we pray that you'll help us to share that love and grace with all who will listen, regardless of where they live or where they come from. But, Lord, thank you for being faithful to us. Help us now to return the favor. We ask that you will move among us in this time of worship. And I pray, Lord, that when we leave this place, we will know that we've been in the presence of a living God who cares deeply about us. Please, Lord, move in us today. In Christ we pray. Amen. Very good. So it's been a few weeks since I got to come and and to bend your ear. Uh, with some of the things that, what's that? Oh yeah, children, you all are dismissed. Well, you probably need it. I know you need it, but, which is another prayer request. Um, But children, you all are dismissed. Go forth and have fun. So we started a series a few weeks ago entitled uh, Uncomfortable Truths. And we talked about the first week about spiritual dehydration, and then we walked into uh, the idea or concept of spiritual constipation. That was a lively discussion, wasn't it? And then today we're going to be looking at spiritual um, pomposity, spiritual pomposity. I don't know if I'm making that word up, but it sounds good, so I'm sticking with it. But uh, a couple things in background, uh, I want you to turn, if you would, back to Matthew 16 for us to look at a couple verses, and then we're going to be spending a great deal of our time in Matthew 23. We're going to be jumping around quite a bit today, so you might need to keep your Bibles handy. Yes, in Matthew 16, beginning in verse 5, as Jerry read to us, um, When they got into the boat, this whole conversation of bread began to ensue. But I want us to focus on verse 6. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now jump ahead to Matthew 23, if you would. In Matthew 23, the first five verses, it says... Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. What we need to understand is there's a concept, an ideology, of this particular type of leaven, this teaching, this attitude, this motivation that was lively among the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees, those three distinct uh, religious groups and influential groups, that this particular type of of leaven, this particular spirit that was alive and well in each of those uh, sects, um, that this is something that we need to be concerned about even in our day and age. Jesus was warning the disciples, just like he warns us, make sure this leaven, this spirit, does not overtake you or become prevalent among you. So in other words, this is something pretty serious that Jesus would warn us about. This is something that could very easily strike up at any time and overtake us if we're not careful. So in Matthew twenty three, he's mentioning specifically the scribes and the Pharisees. We can throw in the Sadducees from Matthew sixteen, and let me give you a little bit of background about each of those. The scribes really started out as being um, those who wrote scripture; that they copied scripture. They they would uh, duplicate the text and they would send them to various churches throughout the land. But those scribes became very uh, very prominent. As interpreters of the scripture, these scribes became so confident in, in what they have seen and what they have transcribed and what they have uh, interpreted that they, ble- they believed that they were very significant in the religious community and that they should be treated with some sort of authority uh, because of what they had taught and what they had written. Let me back up just a moment to explain that just as a reiteration, because I, I, maybe perhaps we overlooked this, but Israel was always seen, and throughout particularly the Old Testament, as being a theocracy. They were a, a, a people that was ran by a government based upon God. They had, the religious people would interpret what God was trying to communicate to the people, and they would speak for God, and so God was at the center of their government basis. Uh, He would be the one who would dictate how they use their finances, how they would set up sanctuary cities, for example, and how they would take in foreigners among them. So all of this was dictated through their their theocracy. Apart from that, we also need to understand that they were a government, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, the the phrase, they were a nation-state, they were a nation-religion. There was only one religion that was allowed throughout their government system, and that was the the Israel faith, the Judaism, we would call it today. In Judaism, uh, because it is a one church nation, we can uh, basically understand that there was a lot of power that was associated with the temple. There was a lot of money that was generated for the temple. And as we've learned, anytime you have a large pot of money somewhere, everybody's going to run to it trying to get their hands in the kitty. So for Israel as a government state, they they have a problem with people wanting to have control of the temple and having control of all the, the political decisions, the legalistic decisions. And so one of those was the scribes who believed that they should have some say-so in how the government was run because of their understanding of the scriptures. The Sadducees, which was a group that was um, developed, if I remember right, as as the descendants of Zadok, who was a high priest throughout the Old Testament, that these particular religious leaders believed that they were the, the real choice for spiritual leadership. The Sadducees believed that they should be the only ones that you consorted with when consorted with when you need some kind of understanding of the Bible or of government. And they saw themselves as very significant among the government. Uh, the scribes would later become attorneys and counselors to the governing officials. The Sadducees would basically just be religious people who were always getting their hands involved saying, you need to follow what we're teaching you. The third group, of course, is the Pharisees, which was developed during the Hasmoneans uh, in like 100 AD or 100 BC leading into the time of Christ. Pharisee is an interesting thing which I looked up. is a term used in Old Testament and New Testament. And in the Old Testament root word of the word Pharisee, it meant separate. And and what this means is, is that they were a people group who lived life separate from anything that had the ability to make them impure or unholy. So these were Pharisees and, and history believes, particularly Josephus, that the Sadducees are the ones who named them separatists because they thought they were better than everybody else, because they had this certain arrogance about their religious prowessness and, and their influence upon the government. Here's the nutshell. We had three major political parties that were extremely religious, extremely full of themselves, and they all believed that they should be in control of the temple. Jesus not not to mention this uh, flawlessly or, or haphazardly, Jesus conflicted with all three groups. They all despised him because he had a ministry that was contrary to what they represented. They were religious people to the fullest of their ability, but Jesus didn't really care much for religious people. Now, to back up, let's reiterate There is a spirit of Pharisaism. There is a spirit of scribenessness. There is a spirit of Sadduceousness that was alive and well at that time and one that he is warning us against today. Be careful that you don't become so religious that you disconnect yourself from the true God is what he would warn us about. This is what he warned his disciples about and what he warns us about. So in Matthew 23, the first couple verses, it says, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them because they do have an intentional authority. What they say, you need to obey regardless if you agree with them or not because God has placed them in a position of leadership over you. However, when it comes to following them and doing the things they do, be very careful because they do not practice what they preach. Let me share a couple other verses with you before we get into this. And I have some notes to say about Paul, so I don't want to to negate that. Hopefully we'll have time to tie it in. No, we need to go to Paul first. I want you to think about this. Paul, which was the greatest apostle of the New Testament, I would say, he wrote probably two-thirds of the entire New Testament. His theology was without merit, without comparison. He was truly an amazing human being that served the Lord. He first was on the Pharisee's side, and he converted to being a real Christian, a real believer in the body. And in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 4.16, he says something that is truly pu- pu- uh, puzzling. I can't talk today. He says, I urge you to imitate me. I urge you to imitate me. Be like I am. He says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, follow my example as I follow Christ's example. I actually saw articles on the internet. Uh, dictating uh, or basically asking the question, is Paul a hypocrite? If you think about it, how many of you here among us today would ever say to another person, I urge you to imitate me in my Christian walk. I urge you to follow my example as I follow Christ's example. How many of you would be so bold as to say that? The interesting thing is, I believe that we should be able to say that with confidence not because we're holy or perfect, not because we're self-righteous or better than other people, which I'm going to explain in a minute. Because in First 1 Timothy 1.15, uh, he wrote this, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. He wants you to imitate him and follow him, but yet he's t- making a very clear affront, I am the biggest sinner of all. In Philippians 3.12, he says this, Not that I have already obtained it or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. To that, he says, imitate me, follow me, and you will do well. To this, this is how I interpret what he's saying. He's not saying, follow me because I have all of the answers. Follow me because I am the best theologian of all time. He's not saying, follow me because I have an unblemished life and a perfect record. He's saying, follow me because I understand the necessity of true humility. I know what it is to live a life of confession and repentance. And I know who I believe and I know who I love and I trust. And I'm following Jesus to the fullest of my ability. And I promise you this, that if you will follow me and try to imitate me, you may hit some hiccups along the road, but in the end, you will find Christ because that's exactly where I'm headed right now. To that extreme, I think we all should be able to say, follow me, because I may make a lot of mistakes and fall on my face time after time, but I know where I'm headed, and I'm headed straight to the finish line. So was Paul a hypocrite? To some degree, probably, we all are, right? Which is one of my pet peeves. The church is filled with hypocrites. But what is it that really makes us hypocrites? Now, there's two different standards. There's the church understanding of what that means, and then there's the worldly understanding of what that means. When the world says the church is filled with hypocrites, it's basically saying the world is filled with people who act one way and talk another. They're, they're people who, who basically... Um, think they're better than everybody else in this world. But from the biblical perspective, if you look at the word hypocrite, it comes from a a word that means uh, hypocritos, which means an actor. It implies that there's somebody who's acting out a particular role that they're not really in real life. That didn't sound right, but I think you can follow me. So, in other words, as somebody who wears a mask, somebody who puts on an identity or a persona and goes to church and acts a particular way, and when church is over, they go home and act a different way, that is what a hypocrite is. Are we hypocrites? Well, probably. But do we have to be? Absolutely not. If we could just follow the impression that, that Paul had for us, the, the, uh, the, the model that he set for us, maintain humility at all regards. Understand that you are a sinner. Confess your sins among one another so that nobody can say he thinks he's better than us. I know it's in First Corinthians where it says that we should not ever think more highly of ourselves than we should. What would happen to the rest of the world and our witness to them if we truly followed the model of Christ and, and lived a life that imitated him and, and followed him as he follows Christ's example? What would happen? The, tr- the, the world would never be able to call us hypocrites anymore. They would still call us sinners, and rightly so. They would call us people who are, who are sold out for Jesus, but are, are doing our absolute best. In spite of our brokenness, in spite of our indifference, in spite of our attitudes, in spite of our weak faith, we're doing our absolute best. And I don't think anybody in the world could complain if we just openly did our best and called it like we saw it. I'm a sinner saved by grace, doing my best to follow in the footsteps of Christ. With that said, uh, the question that comes to me is this. How do we know if the spirit or the, the leaven of Pharisaism is among us? How do we know if we have become religiously or spiritually pompous? How do we know once we've crossed that threshold? Well, there's a whole list of things I want to share with you. I probably will not have time for all of them. There's 17 of them. But I'm going to hope that the Holy Spirit will lead me in which ones to select because I want to lift these up for us to consider. And let me tell you up front, even though some of these may step on your toes, um, I promise you that they don't step on yours more than mine. So I'm not avoiding the ones that make me uncomfortable. The first one it says is this, and you can find this in Matthew 3, verses 7 through 9. Matthew 3, 7 through 9. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was uh, baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. You see, Pharisees' glory in their connection to pious men, but they do not have a personal or living connection with God. In other words, they are, these are a religious people who are very disconnected from God who is the source of life. They may or may not have any recollection of who Christ is at all, but yet they still consider themselves religious and they surround themselves with others who agree with them and who are just as religious as they are. So the warning is this, are you, or the question is this, are you religious, or are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Do you have a theology that is in disconnect with actual practice in your day-to-day living? Do you say one thing but believe another? Does your walk Correlate to your talk. A second one is in Matthew twelve, twenty-four. In Matthew twelve, verse twenty-four. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Pharisees are accusers. And they assume the worst of others all the time. They are accusers and they assume the worst of others. Now, hopefully this one steps on your toes a little bit because this one's very convicting to me the longer I ponder it. Has there ever been a time that I have accused somebody of not really knowing the Lord at all? And is it my place to accuse them of such? There have been times that I could go through a whole list of symptoms, a whole bunch of behaviors that could could indicate that a particular person doesn't know the Lord or hasn't given their heart to him. But is that my place? Am I playing the accuser in that role? Am I assuming the worst of them just because in one moment, in one instant, in one day, they did something that was contrary to being a true follower of Christ. A third one is this, and we can find it in Matthew 15, 12 through 13. Matthew 15, 12 through 13. Then the disciples came to him and asked, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them, they are blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. What we find is that Pharisees are also easily offended. Easily offended when somebody questions their spirituality. When somebody questions their walk with the Lord. When somebody questions their behavior or their attitude or their actions, they get easily offended. First Corinthians thirteen five says this. Uh, so let me see if I can find it real quick. I should have written it out. Um First Corinthians thirteen five. Well, I'll start with verse four. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Number four, I'll try to go a little bit quicker. I still don't think I'm going to get all these. In Matthew 16, verse 1, it says, The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. You see, Pharisees exalt outward signs above the testimony of Scripture. They demand an outward sign as proof of inspiration rather than seeking the Scriptures for truth. Has there ever been a time when somebody says, you know, I was praying and I believe the Lord is telling me, blah, blah, blah. And you have immediately thought to yourself, The Lord doesn't speak to you. Who do you think you are to think the Lord talks to you? Have you ever been in a position where somebody has given a testimony and they said, the Lord healed me, the Lord has done this for me, and you thought to yourself, you're crazy. The Lord had nothing to do with this. For whatever reason, maybe because you see them as being a sinner, Maybe because they only go to church on Christmas and Easter. Maybe because they don't have the rich theology and the spiritual piety that you have. But have you ever thought to yourself, I don't believe them. Because you're looking more for outward signs above testimony of scripture. The fifth one comes out of Matthew 23, 4. We're going to spend more time in this particular chapter. These are the seven woes. In Matthew 23, verse 4, it says, let me make sure I got this right. Yeah, in verse 4, uh, sorry. Uh, They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Religious, or religious Pharisees are hypocrites. They say, but they do not do. I've already kind of gotten into that when I was going out of order. Um, look at Matthew 23.5. We'll get it right into the next one. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplace and to have men call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have only one master, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. You see, Pharisees are also ostentatious, and they seek to be honored by men, and they're more concerned about what people think than what about God thinks. So some questions I could ask you is this. When it comes to your day-to-day living, are you more worried about what your spouse will think of you, what your children think of you, or your coworkers think of you, or are you more, are you more concerned about what God thinks of you? Pharisees want to be looked up to. They want people to praise them. They want people to call them by fancy titles. And titles is where we oftentimes get ourselves in trouble. I heard a comment one time. I won't say what church it was. Let you guess. But I heard a person say, you know, we have a lot of people with titles in this church, but not a lot of leaders. Yeah, that's an ouch right there. You see, we're a people that like to be praised, that like to be recognized, that like to be addressed because of what we've done or because of who we are. But what would God think about it? He goes on in verses 6 and uh, 7, and the words I wrote are this, Pharisees covet exalted positions and places of honor. Whenever you have a guest speaker, you know, the preacher likes to buddy up to them if they're really good speakers. If they're bad speakers, the the pastor will stay far from them because they don't want to be associated with that kind of nonsense. But when, you know, Billy Graham comes in, you got all the brown nosers that run straight to Billy, right? Now they don't do it anymore, but you know what I mean? But some... I've seen how many, how many times have you seen pictures of or videos of the pope and religious people hanging all over the pope? Or when Billy was still alive, religious or political people that would be in his presence um, putting on a show? How many times during election year do you see politicians walking out of churches with, uh, with their Bible under their armpit? Um, showing the people what great believers they are in order to get a particular set of votes, an eighth one is this uh, in luke eleven forty four in luke eleven forty four he says this, "Woe to you because you are Like unmarked graves, which men walk over without even knowing it. What's going on here is that Pharisees corrupt others. You see, the thing about Pharisees is because they are separatists, because they, they, they refrain from going near anything that makes them unholy or blemished, because they're trying to maintain their status, and they separate themselves from anybody that could draw them down the slope that they have climbed up upon. That is why they didn't like when Jesus would associate with sinners, while they wouldn't do certain things to observe Sabbath laws, because that's what they do, and if you're going to be one of us, then you have to do the same. Uh, Because they're separatists, they need to maintain and protect their status, and that means that they have to Put heavy loads upon you so that you can't be like them. They're going to put so many legalistic structures into place and and rules and guidelines upon your life so that you're going to fail because they don't want you to be like them and they're not going to do anything to help you be like them. They want to be the only ones that go to heaven. They want to be the only ones at the table who are right. They want you to fail. Because they're separatists. They're better than you. And as a byproduct of that, they corrupt other people. They mislead other people. One of the things they do is they make people, they convince people that they are spiritually okay when in actuality, they're on a very slippery slope. They're the type that, that, that preach feel-good sermons and they want everybody to feel good about themselves But they don't ever talk about sin. They don't ever talk about things that could prohibit you you from getting into heaven. And they, they just have the attitude, everybody's going to heaven. Everybody's okay. I'm okay. You're okay. We're all okay. Nobody's a sinner. We're all saved by grace. God loves us all equally. So let's just have some fun and have some joy in our lives and quit stressing. They want to corrupt others. They oftentimes will twist scriptures in order to agree with their desired interpretations. Matthew 15:3 thir- through 6. Um let me get back in here. Matthew 15:3 through 6 says, "Why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition?" For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted to God, he is not to honor his father without it or with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. You honor me with your lips, but their hearts are far from me. Number 11 is that Pharisees are more concerned with outward appearance versus their heart. They are diligent to maintain a righteous facade because they don't want the truth to be released. Again, in Matthew 23, 25, and 26, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, First, clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will also be clean. These are the people that go to church, and they wear their finest clothes with the expectation that by doing so, you won't be able to identify the crud that, is, that exists inside their hearts. You, they, they, they cover everything up. I've talked about this from 2 Corinthians 4. They, they put on their makeup, their best suits. They put on their best behavior. And when they get out of the car, they're super righteous. But the minute they get back home, they throw all of that in the corner of the room and save it for another week because they've got to get back to their old self. More concerned with their outward appearance because they're concerned about how you view them. There was a story. Uh, we had a man in a church in eastern Kentucky that hardly ever came to church, but he would show up for board meetings, for business meetings. And when we would come to business meetings, he would uh, sit at the table and be quiet and find out what the issues are. And then he would say, I think we should do this. And naturally, people would say, well, who do you think you are, right? You haven't even been here. Who do you think you are? But he says, I think we need to do this. And I'll tell you what, I'll pay for it. So he'd bring out his wad of cash and start throwing $100 bills out on the table. Later, we discovered that he was a slumlord. We took Christmas presents to a home that was not too far from the church and, and because this family was very needy, uh, they had like four kids living in two bedrooms. And, and Anyway, we got there and cold air was coming up through the, the plywood in the floor. You could see all the way down through the ground and see, you know, if the lights were on, you could see the ground underneath the house. And they had this huge iguana living in this, this cage. That's neither here nor there. But the fact is... They said, yes, one of your church members owns this house. And immediately we looked at each other and said, are you kidding me? This is embarrassing. But it was all about how people viewed him. Pharisees are self-righteous, and they claim that they are above making the same mistakes others have made. This one's very important. If you go to chapter 23 of Matthew 29 and 30, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets. You decorate the graves of the righteous, and you say, if we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would never have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So in their self-righteousness, they really have this belief that when you mess up, when you screw up, and when you uh, really fall on your face, they look to themselves and they say, I would never, Do what they did. I would never go to those types of establishments. I would never consume those types of recreational drugs or whatever else. I would never do that to my spouse. Have you ever caught yourself doing that before? Have you ever had somebody say to you, This is what I did, and you thought to myself, Oh, that's bad. You really screwed up, you're a disgrace. And you're a pastor? How dare you do that? I would never do something like that. A Pharisee trusts in his own works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, This is not of yourselves. Therefore you can't boast. This is all because of the grace of God. In, in Luke eighteen nine through 14, Isaiah 64 through 6, it's all there as well. Never trust in your own works because your works are like rubbish is what Paul said. Your works are nothing. It's all what Christ did for you that makes you able to hold your head up, to have any hope in this world. It's because of Christ's works, not yours. This one is from John 9. I'm not going to go to it because we're out of time, basically. But Pharisees also deride those who will not listen to them. Now, this was part of my confession a couple of weeks ago. That because of the pride things that I've struggled with, because of the education things, because I was raiding a home, raised in a home that kept confirming that I'm stupid Uh, that this has always been an issue for me. When, When I tell people what they should do or how they should do it and they don't listen, I deride them for not listening to me. How stupid they are for not following my suggestion here. Do you all do that kind of stuff? Fifteenth one I have on here is the Pharisees are soul destroyers, not soul winners. We find that in Matthew twenty three thirteen. We also find this one, which I think is a good place to stop. I will tell you this one also. 17 was Pharisees justify themselves before men. That's James 4, 6 and Luke 16, 14, 15. But the one I want to end on is this. Pharisees value tradition more than they value God's word. Mark 7, 5 through 9. They value tradition more than God's word. In other words, they would say, The way we've always done this supersedes whatever Bible verse you can, you can find to contradict it. The fact that we have done this for so many years and we've done it so many we've done it this particular way for so long and we're still here to talk about it, indicates that our way must be better than what you found in Scripture. The way I raise my kids is better than what the Bible says. The Bible says, spare the rod, spoil the child. No, I'm not going to ever discipline my children because I'm smarter than that. My traditional ways, the ways I were taught is better than what the Bible says. So no, I'm not going to buy that. You think that in my marriage I should treat my bride like she is uh, the, the bride of Christ and I should serve her and submit to her? Nonsense. I will never do that. In my culture, the man runs the house. The wife's job is to raise the kids and put food on the table. Don't tell me what my role is because my tradition is better than what you believe the Word of God says. On and on and on, Pharisees value tradition over God's Word. So so here, in, in a nutshell, is the whole thing, is that we are a people that are very vulnerable to this type of demeanor, this type of attitude and motivation. We, we are very easily prone to thinking, I have arrived, I've achieved, I've made it in this world, and therefore you should all buddy up to me and put me on a pedestal because... I am so important to you. But this is completely contrary to what Paul said. He said, imitate me and follow me as I follow Christ. But remember, I am the biggest of sinners. I'm the one who falls on my face all the time. So you should model this. You should keep yourself humble. You should confess your sins to one another. You should repent when all possible. And you should also, on your hands and knees if possible, you should grovel before God. And then people may just want to follow you because they see the sincerity of your faith and they see the commitment of your heart. Then they might, they just might then follow you. And now you see why this is such a complicated matter, why this is so hard. I want so bad to be able to make you follow me, but I can't do that. You have to choose to. All I can tell you is this. What I know for sure is that when I die, I will be at the bosom of Abraham. I know that the blood of Jesus has washed me white as snow. My sins are forgiven. Even though from time to time I continue to mess up, I know that God loves me and he has died on the cross for me and his blood has washed me white as snow. I know that whenever I call on him, he's right there with me. I know that he has equipped me for this task. He's equipped me in this walk. And and anytime I should fall on my face, I know that he's going to pick me up. He's not going to get discouraged with me. He's not going to turn his back on me. He loves me too much, and he has a purpose for me. So I know that when I die, where I'm going to be and where I'm going to spend my eternity, I invite you that if you are unsure, that maybe you might be able to follow me. It's going to be a bumpy ride because we're going to make some more mistakes. But I promise, if you follow me, you're going to get there okay. Can you give me the same assurance that you can do it on your own without any help? You know, the, the crazy thing is we offer Bible studies and Sunday school teacher, uh, classes and small groups all for the purpose of equipping you and giving you confidence so that when you die, you know where you're going to spend your eternity. But still, those classes are empty all the time. And there's lots of excuses why that happens. I know that. We can all, I can find excuses. You know, I, believe me, I can find excuses. But the fact is, I need those classes. By teaching others, I'm teaching myself. I'm learning myself. There is room for improvement for every one of us. And I'm just telling you, you need to find somebody to follow. If you don't want to follow me, that's fine. Don't follow me. Find somebody you can depend on and follow them, but be careful who you pick, that they don't lead you down the wrong road. It happens all the time. The scriptures are filled with warnings of false teachers. So find somebody, but keep yourself humble at all times. We can do this together. Individually, we will fall. That's all I have to say, and I'm sweating like a pig. So let's pray. Gracious Father, we do love you, and I know that we make mistakes. We all do, but that is not an excuse to quit trying. I pray that you will convict all of us, Lord, of the path we need to get on to get to our final destination. Help us to follow you. Help us to not be so religious, Lord, that we have a disconnect between our heads and our hearts. Help us to do our absolute